For James H. McClintock, the construction of Roosevelt Dam was almost providential. Reading through his history of the state, he talks about the dam as almost something fated to happen, with things always managing to break just right for it to go from concept to reality. He sees this in the fact that the Hudson Reservoir and Canal Company went belly up, but the rights for the dam site had been purchased from the Department of the Interior with still some years left to go. If not for those purchase rights, he argues, the Reclamation Service might have gone looking for a different place. Moving forward, all the favorable government reports on the site keeping it fresh in the minds of Washington officials, the rejection of other sites, and the fact that the debate over reclamation was happening all underscored the idea that this site was just meant to be. However, as much as fate or luck was on their side, McClintock may have summed up the dam's raison d'etre best when he said, quote, The principal reason why the Roosevelt Dam was built is that the people of Phoenix went after it with all their might. End quote. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 163, The Salt River Valley Water Users Association. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we followed the political conversation happening in both Phoenix and Washington, D.C. regarding reclamation, which eventually led to the selection of the Tonto Creek site for a future dam, a dam that the government would potentially pay for after the passage of the National Reclamation Act of 1902. But notice how I said potentially. The bill was passed, but it was now time for Phoenix to really make its case that the dam should be built now, as soon as possible. Once again, though, I need to note that the Valley of the Sun really did have an ace up its sleeve in the form of Benjamin Fowler, who had lobbied hard for the passage of the National Reclamation Act, and who was close personal friends with Frank Newell, newly named Chief Engineer of the Reclamation Service. By the by, I've been calling him Frank Newell because one of my sources did, but it should be noted that his full name was Frederick Newell. Following the passage of the bill, Fowler and Newell were often together, including a joint vacation out to Los Angeles. From then on, they were in close cahoots with George Maxwell, the head of the National Irrigation Association, and Reclamation Service officials to talk about what projects the new agency would tackle first. And... Wouldn't you know it, the conversation kept coming back around to the Salt River Valley and, hey, did you know we have a perfect dam site already selected? As Karen L. Smith writes in her 1981 article in the journal Arizona in the West, quote, If Newell had not been convinced of the merits of the Salt River project before 1902, he certainly was thereafter, end quote. Also, as I mentioned last episode, Fowler, through Newell and Maxwell, also had direct access to lobby President Theodore Roosevelt about what the best choice for the first projects under the Reclamation Act could be. Just as an aside, Smith writes that Roosevelt wasn't solely hearing about the Tonto Dam site from this small cabal. He also received a letter from one D.M. Beringer of Philadelphia, who had been a Southern Democrat before becoming a Republican specifically to vote for Roosevelt, 
urging him to select the Salt River Dam site. I mention this because I'm 99.99% certain that the D.M. Berenger that Smith is talking about is none other than Daniel Berenger, who we last talked about in episode 2. For instance, in his letter to Roosevelt, he said he was lobbying for the site because Arizona and the Salt River Valley had given him quote-unquote a good wife. This would be Margaret Bennett of Phoenix, whom he married in 1897. In fact, it's around this same time, 1902, that this rich mine speculator slash geologist from Philadelphia is about to buy Meteor Crater near Flagstaff because he thought there was a hunk of iron sitting at the bottom somewhere. I always love it when our story loops back in on itself and I can make these kind of connections. And oh, since I haven't said it in about four years, go see Meteor Crater. It's amazing. So as much as there is such a thing as a done deal in Washington, this was it. Roosevelt asked Newell to see the original Tonto Dam report after receiving so many glowing recommendations about it. Newell went so far as to say that once Roosevelt signed the Reclamation Act, quote, We already had in hand plans for large works, and as soon as the bill was passed, these were presented to Secretary Hitchcock, that is, the Secretary of the Interior, for his approval. He knew and cared very little about the matter, and beyond some feeble protest, he was induced to authorize the expenditure. End quote. But now that the federal dollars were available, certain details at the local level had to be worked out. And these local details could have very easily upended the entire project. One of the chief concerns was local versus federal control, especially when it came to already existing water rights. There was a huge contingent of farmers, not to mention 11 canal companies, who were naturally concerned for their rights, and those had to be balanced against the needs of the community as a whole. As historian Jay Wagner put it, quote, Men who had fought for water with guns and in the courts would not tolerate interference from the federal government and had to be convinced that a storage dam would be mutually advantageous for all, end quote. This same group was wary about so much power being placed into the hands of the Secretary of the Interior. Then there was the provision that limited the amount of land inside of reclamation projects to the Jeffersonian ideal of 160 acres, which didn't sit well with larger landowners. Dwight Hurd, a ranching magnate with 7,500 acres south of Phoenix, was one of the heavyweights fighting against the provisions of the Reclamation Act. Hurd, by the way, would go on to be the publisher of the Arizona Republican newspaper and a Republican candidate for governor, as well as the namesake for the Hurd Museum of Native American Art. He, and others like him, argued that canal companies should be allowed to regulate the distribution of water along their own canals, and that prior water rights should be respected even if they had more than 160 acres. There also was the not-so-small matter of there having to be some entity, a party of the second part in legalese, to actually contract with the federal government and guarantee repayment of the loans that would be used to build the project. On August 2, 1902, so less than two months after the passage of the National Reclamation Act, a large public meeting was held at the Phoenix Courthouse Plaza. This meeting included lengthy remarks by Fowler, Maxwell, and Francis G. Newlands, the Nevada congressman who had introduced the reclamation bill. During this meeting, the three argued that traditional water rights made a lot of sense, 
if water was a scarce commodity. But the dam would make sure water was plentiful, so a whole different system had to be thought of. What Maxwell and Fowler envisioned was a centralized authority that would distribute water to small farmers across the entire valley. To bring these two sides together, a committee of 30 citizens, including representatives from the canal companies and the cities of Mesa, Tempe, Phoenix, and Glendale, was formed, with Fowler named to be its head. McClintock, in his very dramatic fashion, says that this committee met nearly daily for months while grappling with the serious problems of organization and finance. Finally, what emerged from these discussions was an association of landowners across the valley. Association members would receive shares in the new water storage system, though the water rights themselves would be inseparably tied to the land, handing control basically over to farmers while eliminating canal companies. By the end of 1902, Fowler had recruited a lot of farmers to this association, whose combined land totaled some 150,000 acres across the Valley of the Sun. On February 4, 1903, the association, called the Salt River Valley Water Users Association, published its Articles of Incorporation, and it was officially incorporated under Arizona law five days later on February 9th. I must point out that these articles were drafted by Joseph Kibbe, who was still three years away from becoming governor and loudly disagreeing with President Roosevelt on joint statehood with New Mexico, like we talked about in episode 159. The reason I bring up Kibbe here is because A, all my sources make sure to tell us he was involved, and B, he actually was a major authority on water rights in Arizona. A native from Indiana, he had moved to Florence in 1888, where he was the legal advisor for a large canal company before being appointed an associate justice of the Territorial Supreme Court by President Benjamin Harrison. During his tenure in that office, he made a landmark ruling in 1892 in the case of Wormster et al. versus the Salt River Valley Canal Company. Now, the exact details of this case don't matter for our purposes, but it consisted of a dispute between landowners and the canal company over how the water was being distributed. In his decision, Kibbe made two points that set legal precedent moving forward. These were, one, the irrigator who first put the water to use has prior rights to all other claimants, and two, the water belongs to the land and is not some floating possession that companies could dispense as they saw fit. Canal companies raised all sorts of objections to this determination, but in the end, the so-called Kibbe decision held and became legal precedent that it's still valid today. Kibbe's draft of the Articles of Incorporation for the Salt River Valley Water Users Association basically pledged the group's collective land, now well over 200,000 acres, as collateral for the construction of the dam on the Salt River, with each acre being basically one share in the project. Members were assessed $12.50 per irrigable acre of land, plus an initial subscription fee, which could be paid over a 10-year period. State historian Thomas Sheridan makes sure to point out that Heard and the other large landowners disagreed vehemently with many of these articles, but they had been voted down by a comfortable two-thirds majority. As you might expect, Fowler was named the association's first president, while Kibbe was retained as its legal counsel. 
By March 12th, just a month after the association incorporated, the Secretary of the Interior tentatively authorized the building of a dam at the Tonto Creek site. Then on October 15, 1903, the Interior Department ordered the expenditure of the first $100,000 to begin the construction of the dam. McClintock says that the people burned much red fire that night in celebration of this news. Now, that's not a phrase I'm actually familiar with, but from context clues, it probably means that there was a lot of cheering, speech-making, and drinking happening. The Salt River Valley Water Users Association was now well on its way toward remaking Phoenix into a literal agricultural oasis in the middle of the desert. And though the agriculture part has slipped away, it's something that it continues to do till this day. Because the association is still alive and well, but now is one of the two separate entities that make up the Salt River Project, or SRP, the major electric and water utility in central Arizona. The eventual dam on the Salt River was not the first of the reclamation projects. That honor goes to the Derby Dam, built on the Truckee River 20 miles east of Reno, Nevada, mainly because the sponsor of the bill, Congressman Newlands, was from Nevada. But it was one of the first five projects that the Reclamation Service would tackle. I'm not going to talk about the building of the Roosevelt Dam this episode. We'll handle that next week, and knowing me, most likely the week after that. Instead, I want to pivot our attention to the other major plot thread from this recent run of episodes. Indeed, you were probably asking yourself at what point I was going to talk about the Gila River and why it was that the idea of this dam in central Arizona floundered for a couple more decades. As I have mentioned several times now, there was a strong belief perpetuated by the press and the government itself that the first reclamation project would be to relieve all the suffering Amerindians along the Gila. However, the better organized Salt River Valley plus the factors we discussed last week and we'll get to in a moment, stole the focus of the Reclamation Service and charged forward with its own plans to build the dam. A popular writer at the time summarized the irony when he wrote in 1903, Everyone remembers, of course, that the very forefront of national reclamation was the San Carlos Reservoir. It was urged and urged with all the eloquence of the Irrigation Crusade and with the added plea of humanity. It was not only to be a great exemplar of the noble national irrigation policy of reclaiming arid public lands in order that home seekers might have homes, it was also to succor something like 7,000 Pima Indians who are starving because deprived of their water by white settlers. He then added that if not for the Pima, quote, it is not too much to say that the whole national irrigation movement would have been handicapped by several years, end quote. But though the governor of Arizona the House Committee on Irrigation of Arid Lands, and even Newell himself championed this cause, when the National Reclamation Act passed, it contained no mechanism for irrigation on reservation land. The whole system was set up for Water Users Association and others to eventually repay all the federal loans to build the dams, canals, and other infrastructure projects. But that didn't apply to the reservations, as there was no avenue for putting a lien on Amerindian territory, or somehow else leveraging it to pay back any incurred costs. 
and now that the Salt River Dam seemed like a sure thing, white support for this other dam in Arizona was starting to waver. The Arizona Republican newspaper had originally supported building a dam at the San Carlos site, but that was back when only public lands were going to be included in reclamation projects. Once the private lands along the Salt River became involved, they were a whole lot less certain. Their argument was parochial, but not entirely unfounded. It was hard enough convincing Congress to build a dam for Arizona, but now that the territory was asking for two dams, once the San Carlos project was done, lawmakers might say they needed to spread the wealth to the other ducks in the reclamation pond. Following the passage of the Reclamation Act, the Phoenix Gazette opined, pretty callously in my opinion, quote, The San Carlos is not our fight, but the government is looking after every section. The people who hope to be benefited from the San Carlos Reservoir will be taken care of, and the strife that has been engendered over the question of who shall have a reservoir is unnecessary. End quote. I hope I have impressed upon you by now how little of that is actually true. But it's not like the idea didn't have some defenders, as there were white settlers along the Gila who would benefit from the San Carlos Dam. Tom Whedon, the former editor of the Florence Enterprise, the current editor of the Florence Blade Tribune, and that implacable foe of James Addison Rivas, stirred the pot by accusing, several times, the people of the Salt River of trying to steal their dam. Claims that the Phoenix papers laughed off, saying that they wanted their neighbors to the south to have their dam, but maybe after bigger, more prosperous Phoenix had it first. Smith says that in 1903, it kind of dawned on the white settlers along the Gila that they couldn't really keep playing the suffering Indian card and expecting it to work. In fact, in February 1903, as the Salt River Valley Water Users Association was incorporating, settlers in Florence and Casa Grande were trying to do the same thing. They even reached out to Maxwell and Kibbe asking for their help organizing. However, this turned out to be too little too late. They couldn't compete now with all the lobbying Fowler had done over the past several years in Washington, and they didn't have any leaders as dedicated to seeing their goal realized. There was a Stop the Tonto bandwagon movement through the fall of 1903, and Florence businessmen even threatened economic retaliation against Phoenix, but in the end this was all talk from some angry people and didn't go anywhere. And nowhere is exactly where the idea of the San Carlos Reservoir went. Marcus Aurelius Smith, Arizona's congressional delegate, told the Secretary of the Interior in February 1903 that he wouldn't make any recommendation of which project to go for, but would rely on the Secretary to use his best judgment. Smith would actually receive a reply from Newell, who tried to call attention to the need for legislation to actually get something done at the San Carlos site. After saying that the National Reclamation Act didn't carry any provisions for the irrigation of reservations, Newell also pointed out that this was the first year that those interested in building a dam on the Gila had failed to include a line in the annual Indian Appropriations Bill to move the project forward. At one point, the Secretary of the Interior, just to make sure they were moving ahead with the right project, did ask Newell for reports on the two proposed dams. This Newell did, but 
He opined that though they were bound to be angry people along the Gila and that both were useful projects, it was better just to go with the Tonto Creek site. From his perspective, the simpler engineering, the low silt beds, and the more pressing need for water around Phoenix, note that's Newell's opinion, justified going with the Salt River. He would say, quote, All of these and other matters have been weighed as carefully and impartially as could be, and a decision reached upon lines which are believed to be thoroughly sound and businesslike, end quote. With this ringing endorsement from the chief engineer of the Reclamation Service, this secretary let the matter drop, and the idea of the San Carlos Reservoir would languish. During the midst of all of this, the Indian Service itself, which oversaw the reservation, appeared to be doing very, very little. In July 1902, the agency declared that it didn't have any information about the construction of dams along the Salt or the Gila River. However, before the Salt River selection was announced, the Indian Service was actually already preparing to investigate the possibility of purchasing power generated by that dam to use in a large-scale operation to pump groundwater in the Gila Valley to the reservation. And this they were considering despite the Akmel Odom's direct objections. To understand this, let's take a step back and look what was happening on the reservation. Historian David H. DeJong tells us that during this era, Amerindian tribal and economic rights were being steadily eroded. This included a truly heinous ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1903 that Congress had the authority to unilaterally change the terms of treaties the U.S. had made with Amerindian tribes. Many land speculators were eyeing the Pima Reservation and were asking for allotment, basically assigning Indian families a plot of land and then turning over the reservation to the public. And things were not helped at all by the appointment of William H. Code as Chief Irrigation Engineer of the Indian Service. Code was a former irrigation engineer for Dr. A.J. Chandler and others, and had been assigned to be the Indian inspector for the Pima Reservation in 1902. He had connections to Newell and the Secretary of the Interior, with influence that went up to President Roosevelt himself. Code also happened to be an engineering member of the Salt River Valley Water Users Association. But the biggest strike against him is the fact that he opposed the San Carlos Reservoir, considering it to be wasteful and not useful. For him, the answer was to sink pumps and literally bring up water in the Gila Valley, and he pursued that almost single-mindedly to the detriment of the Pima. As a perfect example, in 1904, an engineer on the reservation proposed utilizing a system to harness the seepage waters from the Gila River, which could, he estimated, irrigate fields for about half the Amerindians living on the reservation. While Code agreed with the amount of water that could be had in this manner, in his official report, he complained that the Akmel Odom were ineffective farmers because they could have been irrigating more land than they currently were. He actually wrote to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, quote, Until the present water supply is used by these Indians in a proper manner and made to irrigate every acre it can successfully provide for, I would not recommend spending large sums of money in this locality. End quote. 
Oh, and by the way, Code was just the latest in a long series of American officials who decided that it was unfeasible for the Amerindians to even put up a fight for their usurped water rights, and so he never tried. I already want to smack this guy. Code would make backdoor deals with the USGS, saying that if they recommended selling 180,000 acres of land to pay for the pumps and the power plant to run them, he would make sure that it was approved. He then requested and received permission to sink five smaller wells in a pumping plant near Sacaton as a proof of concept that the Amerindian fields could be watered this way. However, he literally hid the plan from the Akmel Odom and the Maricopa because, guess what? They do not want pumped groundwater. They believe that groundwater caused bowel and kidney disease and would outright kill their horses and cows. Right or wrong, that was their expressed opinion on the matter. Antonio Azul, the leading man of the Akmel Odom, wrote letters to both the Secretary of the Interior and the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, stating that his desire for his people was to join the Salt River Valley Water Users Association and have a canal bring water to them. But with the erosion of their authority over how anything on the reservation was handled, all decisions were being made by Code, who was laser-focused on his ground-pumping project. And that meant having a power plant built on the Salt River to provide the electricity to run the pumps that Code loved and that his charges hated. The result is what is known as the Sacaton Contract that was signed on the Akamel Odom's behalf, cough, cough, by the Secretary of the Interior and by the Salt River Valley Water Users Association. In brief, this contract sold access to 1,000 horsepower of electricity to the Amerindians for $300,000. But note that I said access to the electricity, because, of course, they still had to pay for the actual power they ended up using, and they would only be able to get this power out of this surplus that association members didn't use. As part of this deal, 10,000 acres of reservation land was included into the Salt River Valley Water Users Association for determining costs, because the Pima have to pay their fair share, you know, but they were not, I repeat, not members of the association. Under no circumstances was water to be provided to the Amerindians by the association. It's very telling that Kibbe, who helped write this deal, would later admit that a non-Indian would never have signed such a document. Nevertheless, Code got the Sacaton contract signed and ran with it. Because the proposed power plant and 10 pumps would cost $540,000, the Amerindians would be obligated to sell reservation land to reimburse the cost. Code had in mind land on the western side of the reservation that could easily be watered using canals and wells near the Salt River, just the type of land that all those people eager to get a piece of the reservation would love. And he recommended selling 180,000 acres at the ridiculously low price of $3 an acre when land with water was going for $100 an acre on the open market. The Sacaton Project, the name for all of this, was discussed in 1905 by the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Indian Affairs. 
Newell was there, testifying that this was all good for the Amerindians, that the power plant was necessary, and the only way to pay for it was to sell some reservation land. This, he said, was the only feasible way to supply the Pima with the water they needed. The USGS engineer, who had already made a backroom deal with Code, agreed with Newell's assessment, and when the commissioner was informed of his testimony, he turned the whole thing over to Code, who was the expert on all this, don't you know? Assured that there was plenty of water to be had for the Amerindians, the Senate approved an initial appropriation to move ahead with the project. All of this came as a bolt out of the blue to the Akamelodom. Code had done all of this without consulting or involving them in the process at all. Azul would fire off letters again, especially saying that the idea to allot every family only five acres of land, another Code idea, was ridiculous, as many were working 60-plus acres and needed even more land to graze their livestock. Hugh Patton, the Akamel Odom man who I mentioned was one of the original teachers at the Phoenix Indian School, wrote a letter on behalf of, of Zul and really his whole people, complaining about all of this and especially this deal where they had to give up some of their reservation. They had, quote, no land to spare, as Mr. Code thinks, end quote. In another letter, Azul said the government officials had sent in false reports with the purpose of defrauding the Pima of their land, and that his people were willing to pay for their fair share of river water. But the government turned a deaf ear to most of this. When Patton and another Akamel Odom man planned to go to Washington, D.C. to continue their argument, they were told point-blank that they were forbidden to leave the reservation, or to even talk to any officials that visited the reservation. The only victory the Akamel Odom had was that allotment was postponed, with the vague promise that the next time it was brought up, it would be in consultation with the tribe. By 1908, as Dijon puts it, the Pima stood on a precipice, with the potential loss of 180,000 acres of their land and what little water from the healer there was. And I'm sorry to say that I'm going to leave them there for now. I'm going to come back around to the Pima again when we get into the decades-long slog to finally build the San Carlos Reservoir, mainly because the battles they are currently fighting are very involved and I want to give them the treatment they deserve. But join me next week as we start the arduous process of building the Roosevelt Dam, including the all-important question of, how the heck do we get to this site in the middle of nowhere? I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.